theyeshiva.net. Thank you so much, my dear friend, Rabbi Shmuel, for your beautiful, beautiful words, your very kind introductory remarks. Thank you so much, Rabbi Aaron, my dear friend, Rabbi Aaron, Rabbi Moshe. Thank you so much to the Arch and to the base for this initiative and all of the ongoing initiatives of Living Inspired to be able to keep us together, united, optimistic, giving all of us and empowering us with the vigor, the stamina, the sense of camaraderie, of Jewish unity, love, inspiration, that we all so desperately long for and yearn for today. I am so privileged to be able to be here with you once again. We have had quite a few sessions since last Purim, when uh, the corona really got out of hand and the pandemic changed the world. And it's always a privilege and thrilling for me to be together with so many close friends, all of my brothers and sisters in the extraordinary South African Jewish community, and all of you who are joining us here today. I am so glad that you're here. Thank you for gracing us with your presence. And I'm privileged to be able to be here at this special evening, dedicated, as you just said, in tribute and loving memory of Eric Samson, of Rebbe Zriel, Ben Reb David, in tribute of the Shloishim, on the sixth day of Adar, may he always remain a beacon and a source of everlasting blessing and inspiration to his wife, his children, the entire mishpucha, the entire family, the entire community, all of the Jewish people in the whole world, and a good to better for every one of them, to may the family always celebrate the positive legacy of his memory and make sure that it continues and it will continue in their hearts and all of our hearts and souls and always to be able to celebrate blessings and simchas with bracha and hatzlocha ad blidai. Our theme today, appropriate for the month of Adar and appropriate, of course, for a few days before Purim, is a life of positivity. the path towards a life of positivity, a life of joy. Let me begin, as usual, with uh, a good old Jewish anecdote. (laughs) It happens to be, I think, a pretty good one as well. So there was this teenager who was studying for his final exam on history, world history. The night before the exam, tension is high, he really has to succeed. And uh, he turns to his father and he says, Daddy, Daddy, I'm struggling with this information. Daddy says, yeah, what, what, son? He says, Daddy, how did the First World War break out? 1914, what happened? They used to call it the Great War. How did this Great War break out? Now, Tati, with all due respect, was ignorant. He knew nothing about how the First World War began. But he didn't want to, what would they say in South Africa, right? He didn't feel comfortable telling his son that he 
knows nothing about history. So he decided, you know, he'll throw out an answer. He says, Belgium invaded Holland, and the rest is history. Mom, who was sitting in the dining room doing some work, now she's a professor of history. She wrote a doctorate in European history. She hears this conversation. She screams to her husband. She's like, was Dreystock up? You're hacking a Chinook. Belgium invaded Holland? That's how the First World War broke out? You're ignorant. You're clueless. You know nothing about history. And in fact, if you're the one educating our son about history, he's going to grow up to be as ignorant as you are. That's not what happened. It was June 28th when Gavrilo Princip shot the ear of the throne of the Austro-Hungarian Empire in Sarajevo. That's what triggered the onset of the First World War. The husband is feeling insulted. So, of course, he responds, Who asked you? Nobody asked you how the First World War began. Why are you mixing into my business? Our son asked me how the First World War began. I happen to know, and please do not mix into my life and start telling me things when I don't ask you to tell them to me. And now the boy speaks up and he says, Okay, Tati, it's fine. I already got the answer how the First World War broke out. It's a time of tension. People have been on lockdown for a long time. And you and I know very well, if the marriages have been struggling on a normal day, these situations only exasperate and bring out the tension so much more. People who are blessed with a good marriage, with healthy relationships, with harmonious homes, in many ways have grown during the quarantine. They became closer, they spent more time with each other, they got to know each other better. I know people who have rectified their marriages during these times. But for others where the relationships are tense on a good day, and he's not leaving the home in the morning, she's not leaving the home in the morning, they've been together for weeks, months, on end sometimes, the tension comes out in a far more powerful way. A lot of people are suffering, there's a lot of mental stress a lot of anxiety, a lot of tension. Not just the marital issues, but many other issues that came as a result of the pandemic. Of course, the losses of life, the illness, the loss of people's livelihood, the stress, the anxiety, the fear, the terror in people's hearts, challenges with children, teenagers, youngsters, at home with screens day and night. It's a difficult time. Wars break out. (laughs) Thank God, not as large as the First World War, but internal wars and conflicts. How can we cultivate an attitude of of deeper serenity, of deeper relaxation? And I'm going to share with you a little story that left an impact on me. Many years ago, when I heard it the first time, there was a Jew I knew, much older than I am, But I had the privilege of knowing him when I was a child, when I was growing up. And he was already quite an older man. He was a Jew who was born in the Soviet Union. His father died before he was born. 
So he was named after his father. His name was Reb Mendel Futterfuss. I remember he would get an aliyah in the Shul Rosh Hashanah, and the Balkare, the one reading the Torah, would call him up and he would say, Yamohoit, Harav Menachem Mendel, Ben Harav Menachem Mendel. And as a child, it was startling for me. Why does he share the same name like his father? And then I think I asked my father or somebody else and explained to me that his father died before his bris. Growing up as a Jew, as a religious Jew, as a chassid in Stalin's Soviet Union, as you know, was an excruciatingly difficult task. He lost many of his children during his lifetime in Stalinist Russia. Ultimately, two children survived out of many. In 1946, when the Second World War was over, a few months after the war was over, Stalin allowed Polish residents who escaped into Russia from Hitler's wrath to go back into Poland. This was a unique opportunity for people to get out of the Iron Curtain if they could prove that they were Polish citizens. So hundreds of Jewish families in Russia falsified passports and papers demonstrating that they are Polish citizens. In fact, both of my parents, my father of blessed memory and my mother Tzalanga Yaren, lived in communist Russia and their families got out of that purgatory in 1946 because of these false passports. Reb Mendel Futtefas was one of those people. They created an organization to help Jews leave and escape Russia. His wife got out, his children got out, he was caught. And he was sent for 10 years to the Gulag. Most people did not survive the Gulag. Joseph Stalin murdered between 20 or some say 50 million people during his 30 years of tyranny from 1924 when he replaced Lenin until his death, March 1953, actually on Purim, or right after Purim. In the Soviet Union, you never get anything clear. We don't know exactly when Stalin died, but it was Purim time. Reb Mendel, Reb Mendel Futafas, was exiled for 10 years in Siberia. He made it out in 1920, in 1964. I already knew him in the 70s and 80s when I was growing up. Wise man, intelligent person, very funny, very great sense of humor, deeply committed Jew, and a wisdom that comes with real life experience in difficult situations. And once in a while he would share stories, episodes that he encountered during his decade in the Siberian Gulag. Now I don't know how many of you know a lot about the Gulag if you read Solzhenitsyn or other reports of the Gulag, but I grew up with a generation of Hasidim who either spent time in the Gulag or their parents spent time in the Gulag, like my own grandfather. It was an unbearable experience. Millions and millions died from the cold, from illness, from the lack of nutrition, the impossible conditions. In Siberia, you're talking about places where it could be 70 below zero on a winter day, 40 below zero, 50 below zero, and you're in a barrack that's not heated, and you're outside all day working. It was just impossible. Millions and millions and millions died. Tens of millions of people died. Besides those who were shot, those who died in the hungers, 
and those who died in the pur- were killed in the purges, etc. Reb Mendel survived. He didn't think he would survive, but he survived. And he would describe how difficult it was. But he said there were moments that were very educational and enlightening. Here is one of his stories that he shared. <laughs> it's one of my favorites, and you'll see why. Such a lesson in life. It was absolutely forbidden to play cards in the barrack. If you were caught playing cards or with a set of cards, you would be placed into solitary confinement. And solitary confinement in Siberia was close to a death sentence. You were without people. You were barely given food. You were with animals, rats, insects. Horrific conditions. And they could put you there for 10 days, for two weeks, for a month, for two months. It was beyond. If you wouldn't die from the physical circumstances, you could die from the mental anguish and the stress. People just lost it. Reb Mendel was in a barrack with a bunch of Gentiles. Some of them were very interesting people. Some of them had a past that was very uh, aristocratic because Stalin put everybody in prison. Some of them were very educated and intelligent. Some of them were more boorish, peasant-like, but they would play cards at night. It was the time to go back to the barrack. Dinner was over, if you can call it dinner. A few, few uh, uh, morsels, a few pieces of you know dried Russian bread that they had. And uh, lights out, you have to go to sleep. And the chevre there would take out cards and start playing. This was common routine. Remendel didn't join them. He was a little bit in his own world, but they had a good relationship. They all respected him because they saw he's a good man, a God-fearing man, an authentic person, and lives by his convictions and with faith. So they had a certain respect towards him. Suddenly, in the middle of the game, the prison warden, they called him the Nachalnik, the one who oversaw the prison. You can hear his footsteps. And he opens the door. And the cards are gone. It's quiet. There's no game. Everybody is quiet. He's like, are you guys playing cards? What cards? When cards? Okay, he leaves. He leaves. The cards come back out. Comes back again 10 minutes later. I hear a commotion. You're playing cards. No cards. (laughs) He comes back the third time. As they continue to play cards, he bursts open the door, no cards. He says, that's it. I am going to find the cards. And he has everybody lined up in the room. Everybody. There's no dressers. There's no bookcases. There's no hiding places. These are barren rooms. There's nothing there. And they're all wearing the pajamas of prisoners in Siberia, which had no pockets. And he starts looking everywhere. There's no cards. He looks in the pajamas, he looks here, there, under people's feet. There was not where to look, there's not much place to look, but he searched, searched, searched. There's absolutely no cards. He is frustrated, he is annoyed, he thought he's going to catch the victim and send him to solitary confinement for two weeks. He leaves, the moment he leaves and the door is closed... The cards come out and the prisoners continue to play. Reb Mendel was astounded. The next morning he goes over to Gregory. Gregory was one of the chevre there. And he says, Gregory, in Russian. You have to explain this to me. 
how are you doing this? I can't figure this out. I don't understand. What happened? Where in the world did you guys hide the cards when this Nachalnik, when this guard, when this warden came in? What did you do with the cards? How do you get away with murder? The man smiles. He says, listen, I wouldn't tell this to anybody, but you I trust. So I'm going to share with you. And Gregory said, we have here in our cell, we have one of the greatest, most talented pickpockers. Pickpocketers in all of the Soviet Union. He's from Moscow. He was a professional thief. He could pickpocket you and you would never, ever know. So let me tell you what happens. When the prison warden comes in, this fellow... Okay, takes the cards and he places it in the pocket of the guard. The guard looks everywhere, but he doesn't look in his own pocket. As he's about to go out, this pickpocketer slips the cards out of his pocket and we have it. This is our custom. And Reb Mendel would look at the youth and he would say, Chevre. That's when I learned so much about life. We all search for happiness in other people's pockets. We search for wisdom, for enlightenment, for serenity, for clarity in other people's pockets. We never think to search in our own pocket. If that prison warden would only think about the possibility that the cards are in his own pocket, you're searching in the wrong place, he would have discovered them. Don't search in other people's pockets. You search in your pocket. And that's when I understood what the Mishnah says in the opening of Tractate Psachim, which we're soon going to celebrate. The night before Passover, everyone searches for the chametz, for the leavened bread with the flame of the candle. A place where you don't bring in chametz, you don't have to check there for the chametz. You only check for chametz in a room where you bring in chametz, at least periodically. If you have some bedroom, some room that you know there's no chametz ever brought in there, you're not obligated to search for chametz there. Ooh, what a deep message. Many of us are searching for chametz in other people's pockets. Did I bring in chametz there? No. Why am I searching in your pocket? Why am I searching in your home? Why am I searching in your heart? I have to search for chametz in my pockets. I have to empty out my pockets. I have to search for chametz in my home. I can't live your life. You have to search chametz in your pocket. For chametz in your pockets, I have to search in mine. That's where it is. That's where everything is. That's where the cards are. It's so true with happiness as well. Mendel would tell the chevri, would tell the youngsters, American youngsters, he would say, don't search for happiness in other people's pockets. You're not going to find them there. You have to search in your own pockets. You have to go into yourself, into your own heart, into your own life, into your own soul, into your own neshama, and discover the cards. Discover the simcha, the joy, the serenity, the tranquility. How do I find it? in my own pockets. 
And for this, there is one scene in the book of Esther that we're all going to read next week, or at least listen to next week, most of us. And I once heard Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, the great Lord Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, a colonel of Racha of blessed memory, who passed away on Shabbos Vayeri, the 20th of Cheshvan, just a few months ago. And he once said that this verse in the Megillah cuts through his heart like a knife, more than any other verse in the Tanakh. It's in the fourth chapter of the Megillah. But I want to give a little preface, a little context, a little introduction. The Talmud says in Tractate Chulin 139, Esther mina Torah minayin. Is there a source for Esther in Torah? And the Talmud says, yes. That fateful verse at the end of Deuteronomy, in that frightening verse that Moses communicates to the Jewish people just days before his passing, when God says, I will conceal my face on that fateful day. You will not see my presence. That is the source for Esther in Torah because Esther in Hebrew means concealment. Esther haster. In fact, Esther Persian is the moon which comes at the time of night, at darkness, when there is a concealment. That's why we appreciate the moon. Esther is associated with the moon. Esther is the moon. Esther comes to the word Hester. Lahastir, to hide, to conceal. Hester Ponim, the concealment of face. I will conceal my face. And there's a reason why the Talmud says this. Because indeed, during the time of Esther, God's face and presence was completely concealed. It's the only book in the Tanakh where the entire narrative takes place in the diaspora during a time of exile. The five books of Moses are the journey towards the land of Israel following the exodus of Egypt. The rest of the Tanakh all takes place in the Holy Land. Joshua, Judges, Samuel, the Kings, the Chronicles, the Prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah. Esther, the entire narrative, even Ezekiel, who leaves to Babylonia, but he starts prophesying in the Holy Land. Esther, the whole scene takes place in Persia after the destruction of the first temple, before the reconstruction of the second temple. And it's the first time in history that a Hitler emerges with a plot that comes close to success. To exterminate every single Jew, young and old, woman and man, in one day, the 13th of Adar. It's a time of tremendous Hester Ponim, tremendous concealment. And there's no way out. Achashverish, the Talmud says, was a Moshe Bekeeper. Persia was the so-called superpower of the time. His influence, his tyranny, his dominion extended over the civilized world. There was nowhere for Jews to run. There was no South Africa. There was no Australia. There was no Shanghai. There was no, even if you had a visa. There was no America. Even if you had a visa. Achashverish was, 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 was the boss. There was no way to escape. This was the worst nightmare, the worst decree in Jewish history. And Mechad in one day. This is Haster Panim. That's where the Talmud says the source of Esther is Aster, Aster Panabayemo. And during that Hester Panim, during that tremendous concealment, there was that unforgettable scene in chapter 4 of the book of Esther. Mordechai, the spiritual leader of the Jewish people at the time, and a cousin of Esther, pleads with her 
and asks her to go in to the palace of her husband, the Hashverish, the Persian king, and plead with him and beseech him and beg of him to to rescind the decree, the edict to exterminate the Jewish people. But Esther refuses. And her logic, her rationality is straightforward. She says, Mordechai, there is a rule in the palace that if you go into the king without permission and he did not summon you, you come out with a head shorter. And I have not been summoned to come to the king already for 30 days. If I just go in on my own initiative without his invitation, I am risking my own life. I will come out a dead woman. You'll be left with nothing. The Jews will be killed and I too will be dead. Not a bad argument. To put it mildly, pretty logical. A kluge, as they say, a kluge Yiddish Afroy, she's a smart lady. And Mordechai sends back a message. And I want you to hear this message. He says to her, First of all, don't think that you're, you're going to escape the fate of all the Jews by being in the palace. Mordechai is saying something so powerful. When the day of reckoning comes, you're going to be the same dirty Jew and you will be killed with the same glee and passion like all of us. Don't think just because you have an elevated position in Germany and you were close with former, you were close with people who later joined the Gestapo and the SS, they will spare you. At a moment of truth, you will be sent to the gas chambers like everybody else, Esther. The moment they find out you're Jewish, you're doomed. So don't think you're going to be safe. And then Mordechai continues. If you're silent at this time, the Jews will be saved. Salvation will come from elsewhere. From elsewhere. But you and your father's home will perish because you forfeited, you neglected the opportunity and the privilege that was given to you to save the Jewish people. And then Mordechai concludes... And who knows if this is not the reason why you have been coronated as the queen of the Persian Empire. I am following the interpretation of Rabbeinu Avram Ibn Ezra, the 11th century great Spanish commentator, poet, physicist, scientist, astronomer, linguist, philosopher, sage, and biblical commentator, Abraham Ibn Ezra. This is his interpretation. Rashi gives a different interpretation, but that's not for now. Mordechai said, who knows if this is not the reason why you have reached this position. Esther, five, six years ago, you were appointed as a queen. You think it was in vain? You think it was just a mistake? You think it was just a random coincidence that a Jewish girl from all of the women in the Persian Empire, a Jewish girl was abducted. You think it was just a random error that you were taken and chosen and liked and cherished by King Ahasuerus and you became the first lady of the Persian Empire? It wasn't a random event. There is providence here. There is what we call hashgachapratis. 
God chose you to become the queen five, six years ago so that for this moment you will rise to the occasion and save the Jewish people from this calamity and rescue Netzach Yisrael, the eternity of the Jewish people and Judaism. And this touches Esther. This cuts into her soul like a knife. And she tells Mordechai, I'm going. Gather all the Jews in Shushan. Pray, fast for three days. I'm also going to fast. And I will enter into the king's private chamber without being called. At this great moment of Hester Ponim of concealment, absolute confusion, absolute uncertainty. The Jews were looking at a future that seemed bleaker than bleak and darker than any darkness that they have experienced before. But Mordechai, the one who represented the timeless vision of Jewish hope and Jewish faith, says to Esther, can you notice the presence of God in this moment? Yes. Right now you can notice the presence of God in this Hester upon him, in this concealment. Do you see why you were chosen as a queen? It was not a mistake. This is your moment to shine. This is your moment to rise to the occasion. This is your calling and your destiny. There's a fascinating Rashi that we're going to learn just in a few weeks. Vayikra el Moshe. God summons Moses. He calls Moses. And Rashi contrasts that from later in Numbers which says Vayikar Elokim el Bilam. God chanced upon Bilam. The difference between Vayikar and Vayikra is one letter. Vayikar is he chanced. Vayikra is he called. And the difference is the Aleph. We could look at life in two different ways. I could look at life as just a continuation of random coincidences. It begins with the beginning. The Big Bang was random. The next 15.3 billion years were random. We happened to have mazel that we ended up on a planet that happens to support life, and that's why we're here. But by definition, everything is random. Everything is chance. Everything is coincidence. Albert Einstein once said, you could look at the world in one of two ways. Either nothing is a miracle, or everything is a miracle. There's nothing in between. Either nothing is a miracle... But if it's the other way around, everything is a miracle. Just study the chemistry of one cell. Just study the chemistry of one atom. Just study what it takes to be able to produce a peach or a plum or an apple. Just study the tusk of an elephant or one blade of grass or flake of snow. I'm looking at all the snow outside here in Rockland County, New York. Just what it takes to have one droplet of water and how it affects your body or the 70 trillion cells in your body. Everything is a miracle. There are two different perspectives. Rabbi Sachs said that we have a word in Hebrew and we have another word in Hebrew. They're exactly the same. Mikre and Mikra. Mem kufresh aleph, mem kufresh hey. Mikre, mikra. Mikre is a coincidence. Mikre, nikris, a coincidence. Mikra, a calling. You have to choose how to live your life. Do I live my life as a mikra? Do I live my life as a mikra? I could look at my life and say it's just a series of coincidences. Everything is a coincidence. Just make the best out of it. And if you can't numb yourself as much as possible, 
The Jewish perspective is Vayikrel Moshe. Not a coincidence. It's a calling. Every moment is a calling. Every encounter is an opportunity. And every challenge is an invitation for deeper awareness, deeper growth, deeper transformation. At this moment of great concealment, Esther says, there's no way out. And if I go in, I'm going to get killed. And Mordechai says to her, can you see the Aleph of Ayikra? Because it's the Aleph, it's the oneness, it's God that makes all the difference. If there is purpose or there's purposelessness. And it's interesting, in the Torah scroll, sometimes letters are written in a very small form. They're called Osio Ze'erot. One of them is Vayikra. The Aleph of Vayikra is a tiny Aleph. If you look at a Torah scroll, you'll see Vayikra, the Aleph is tiny. Because sometimes... God is invisible. We don't see the Aleph. Hashem Echad. Aleph is oneness. We don't see the oneness. Everything just looks random. There's no purpose. There's no rhythm. There's no meaning. There's no harmony. Everything is a coincidence. The Aleph is hidden. Hester. Hester. Aster. Panebayemu. That's Hester. Comes Mordechai and says, Tayyide Esther, my precious Esther. Mi yoideyem leis kazoy sigat lamalchus. Can you appreciate the fact that in this little Aleph, there may be a tiny Aleph, but Vayikra, you are being called, you are being summoned. You didn't end up in this palace by mistake. You ended up in this palace because God chose you to save the world, to save the Jewish people, to transform darkness into light. Friends, for me, This is one of the most important ideas to be able to help us live a life of serenity, of calmness, of joy. By recalling those words of Mardachai, These are times, my dearest friends, that try men's souls, to quote Thomas, paraphrase Thomas Paine, and that try all people's souls, men and women and children, These times could bring out the worst in people. These times can bring out the best in people. These are times when we can surrender to mediocrity, live lives of quiet desperation, to quote Thoreau, become couch potatoes and quetch and groan and moan like some of us are very, very accustomed to. But... These are also times when we can hear our calling. It is not a mistake that you are living right here, right now, in this particular home, in this particular country, in this particular milieu, under these particular circumstances, with this particular family, dealing with these particular situations. This is the concept of Ashgacha Protis, divine providence. You have been brought to the kingdom for this moment. Now you say, I'm not a queen, and Achashverosh never appointed me as the first lady. 
But let's not forget those words of God to Moses before the giving of the Torah. To be a Jew is to be a member of a kingdom of princes and a sacred nation. The Mishnah says in Shabbat, call Yisrael every Jew is a, is a prince. And the Zohar says, call Yisrael every Jew is actually a king or a queen. Rabbi Aaron of Karlin said the greatest tragedy in life is when the prince or princess forgets who they are when I think that I am a shmata, I'm a nebach, not realizing that he got lemalchus. Every single one of us is a melech, every single one of us is a queen, a spouse of God, who is the king, v'hoya Hashem lemelech al You are the queen, you are Esther HaMalke, maybe a time of concealment, but he got lemalchus. There is a reason you are exactly where you are. There is a mission for you to fulfill. There is a challenge for you to overcome. There is darkness for you to transform into light. There are opportunities every day and every moment for you to bring light into your home, your family, yourself, your spouse, your children, your relatives, your community, and ultimately the whole Jewish world and the world. It's a beautiful interpretation of the Svasemes. It says in the opening of Parshat Truma, this week's portion, God speaks to Moses and he says, Ask every Jew to take from me and separate a contribution from me for my sake to build a temple, to build a tabernacle. And then he continues and the words grammatically are awkward. Literally from each human being, from each person whose heart will be generous, you should take my contribution. He could say, whoever wants to give will give. From each, per- from, from each person whose heart will be generous, you will give my contribution. Yeah, if somebody's heart is not generous, I mean, they're not going to give a contribution. It's, it wasn't an obligatory donation. These were voluntary donations. So the Sfasemis says there is a deeper interpretation here. May eis kol ish libo means, may eis kol ish libo. From every person... And from anything that he is feeling or experiencing in his heart, you have to be able to find my portion there. You have to be able to find my truth there. Each of us has so many longings and aspirations. There are things that make you anxious. There are things that you wonder about. There are things that you yearn for, that you aspire for. Any person... Whatever his heart or her heart is moved by, there's so many things I want, I'm upset about because I want them. I want you to know that I, God, I'm present in all of them. You have to be able to find my portion over there. Or to put it in other words, in every single moment of your life, there is a calling. So your 11-year-old boy or your 11-year-old girl your teenage child or your toddler, your spouse or your mother, your sister-in-law or your brother-in-law, made a comment to you this morning and it triggered such deep anger in you, such deep pain in you. You can allow yourself to go into the abyss emotionally. So God tells Moses, no, no, may ace call isha sheyidvenu liba. From any person, whatever his heart is being triggered about, if you go deeper, you will find that there is something here that you are called for to fix, to repair, to do. 
Don't allow your amygdala to take over and resign to fear and create this fight or flight sensation. Don't live only in your amygdala or what the Sfarim would call your nefesh Bahamas, your reptilian brain. No. Take a deep breath. Center yourself. Anchor yourself. Feel the pain. Experience the pain. And then allow yourself to say, I, am a queen. I'm a king. Eved Melech Melech, the Talmud and the Zohar say, the servant of a king is the king. I am an ambassador of Hashem in this world. What is my mission right now, right here? He got Lamalchos. Don't surrender to the concealment. Find the light. Find the meaning. Find the opportunity. This is a moment of growth for you and for your child. As long as I don't surrender to the external facade of the moment, I rather ask myself, what is it that I am called on to be at this moment? And sometimes it's not easy to go there because I may have to give up expectations that I always had what my life is supposed to look like, what my home is supposed to look like, what my family is supposed to look like, what my day is supposed to look like. Esther may have also harbored those dreams. Do you know that Esther was a valedictorian of the girl system of Johannesburg or Cape Town or other communities in South Africa? Esther was the valedictorian of all the Beis Yaakovs. They were all fighting for her, all the seminaries in Israel. She was la creme de la creme. The Shatchanim were already going crazy at 16. They said, this girl is going to be top. Nobody like Esther. And you know what happens to her? Instead of following the trajectory of the Jewish system, she ends up by a Persian, non-Jewish, drunk, alcoholic, Meshugana king. And Mardachai says, there is grief, there is denial, there is anger, there is bargaining, there is grief. That's normal. You can grieve. You can cry. And then take a deep breath and say, But maybe God has a different mission for my soul. I was supposed to come to the palace and get married to Achashverosh to save the Jewish people. And you never know what friendship what opportunities, what circumstances will come your way that can change the world and can impact the world. But what you do know is that wherever you are, you were meant to be. And whatever you're dealing with, you were meant to deal with because this is your opportunity to think like a queen. He got Lamalchus. Don't think like a victim. Don't think like a slave. Expand your horizons. Develop the consciousness of a Melech, of a Malka. This was Mordechai's, these were Mordechai's timeless words that we could still hear in our souls and hearts. My dearest friends, it's true for each and every single one of us. Positivity, serenity, and joy exists in my own pockets, but I have to reformat my thought processes instead of thinking about my life in terms of bleakness and desperation, as a vayikar, as a mikra, start thinking of your life as a vayikra, 
Every moment is a calling, every encounter, every experience, an opportunity to bring light to you and to the world around you. Thank you very much. What a powerful question. This is a question that people ask all the time. How am I supposed to feel hope during this situation? I don't see an end in sight. And every week, another lockdown, another lockdown, more deaths, more illnesses. What, what, what's going to be here? How do we feel hope? And I say to you, it's so important to remember two things. Number one, the ex- existence doesn't make sense. According to the entropy principle, every single moment, we should all divert back into nothingness. Every moment that our nine biological systems are functioning is a miracle. The Baal Shem Tov said, nature is only a camouflage term for frequent miracles. God is the one who created the world and is responsible for the world. You don't have to be anxious about the future. You have to fulfill your mission. We have to realize, as our grandmothers used to say, God runs the world. No doctor runs the world, no president runs the world, no scientist runs the world. We used to think scientists run the world. Came the corona and said, scientists and doctors also, you know, you know they, 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 we respect them, and we have to respect them for their knowledge, but we're all ultimately ignorant and clueless. Our vulnerability has been disclosed. It's been displayed. And you know what? When you can surrender to God and embrace your vulnerability, it becomes a tremendous source of confidence. That's what King David does in Psalm 23. God is my shepherd, I shall not want. Even when I walk in the valley of the shadow of death, I don't fear evil because you're with me. Can you really do that? Can we take a muna and make it real these days? Very real. Really trust Hashem. He is right here present at this moment, even if the Aleph is small. But I would also add, my dear friend, sunrise is not on lockdown. Sunset is not on lockdown. Hope is not on lockdown. Prayer is not on lockdown. Love is not on lockdown. Study of Torah is not on lockdown. Imagination is not on lockdown. Dreams are not on lockdown. Gestures of closeness and affection are not on lockdown. And inner creativity is not on lockdown. So utilize this moment to become an ambassador of love, light, hope, healing. Don't be a victim. I can wake up in the morning and say, another horrible day. Or I could wake up in the morning and say, how am I going to ignite a flame of hope in the hearts of three people today? Pick up a telephone and call three people who you know could use a little inspiration and tell them that you love them and you're thinking about them. It will change your day. Excellent question. If everything is run by Hashem, so let's just become couch potatoes and go to sleep and eat pizza, right? Or make a braai in South Africa. Eat some steak, drink some wine, let him do everything else. Take a look at Mordechai and Esther. Mordechai told Esther, God put you in the palace. And now you have to go into Ahasuerus. We are defined as God's partners in the work of creation. There's a partnership. When you go into business with a partner, each partner contributes a significant amount to the business. One partner doesn't say, oh, I have a partner, let him do everything. That's not called a partner. God shows us to be his partners in creation. That means I have to make things happen. 
I can't just watch things happen. We are summoned to do, to act. That is the uniqueness of being created in the image of God. We are partners with Hashem in the work of creation. So I have to know, I didn't create the world. And ultimately, God is the one who created all of the systems and created all of the opportunities. But I want to become a channel for His light to flow through me. I was created to become that channel. And if I am not that channel, that light will not be experienced in the world. And that's where freedom of choice is so important, how to react to the circumstances. I cannot always undo the circumstances. I wish I can go like this and stop the corona. Trust me, we're all suffering. I can't always change the circumstances, but I choose how to look at the circumstances and how to react to them. Thank you. In these concealed times, how do you find your calling? That's a wonderful question. And I think when you can look in yourself and find something you're passionate about and something that is a real need in the world, where your passion meets a genuine need, that's probably where your calling is. But I would also add, if you have talents, resources, gifts, those are part of your calling. And each one of us has something unique to contribute to the world. And I would add one more thing. If there's something that you know is good to do and it's difficult for you, that's probably part of your calling. When you're encountering profound resistance to something you know you should be involved in, psychological resistance, practical resistance, emotional resistance, that's probably where your calling is, and that's why the Yetzer Hara, the negative inclination, is resisting it, because he does not want you to succeed. So go on with even more passion. Okay, thank you so much, everyone. Beautiful, positive Torah. If I can say that your ability to share inspiring and meaningful He's got changeful Torah. It's truly wonderful. A real, a real thank you. Thank you, Reb Aaron. Thank you, Reb Shmuel. Thank you, Reb Marja. Thank you to all of you, my dearest friends from South Africa. I love you all. Chazak, chazak, v'niz chazek. Keep your spirits high. Keep the love flowing. And have an extraordinary, happy, and joyous other and Purim. Amen. And peace God also by you and your family. Amen. Thank you so much. Thank you. You're the best. Ah, South African Yidin. Vadame Yidin, Vadame Yidin. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.